Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Welcome to episode 172 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening show produced for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host and producer, and I look forward to sharing with you over the next 40 minutes updates to local garden scenes and recent articles about gardens, plants, and designers, both here in California and around the world. Gardens are in my DNA. I was raised in a family of gardeners, and my grandparents and mother handed down a love of flowers, of orchids, and of roses, among many other gifts. I have been an inveterate gardener for years. From that first six-pack of marigolds I bought at Home Depot in suburban Connecticut to laying out birthday rose garden, planting fruit trees, and rescuing overgrown and underloved gardens, as well as building a garden library, hunting down garden books from classic design text to glossy coffee table indulgences. I spent years getting to know California's Mediterranean garden landscapes, plants, and climate, even as I have fallen for English and continental garden design traditions, grown fond of the particularities and peculiarities of succulents, which perform so well in our climate, and learned to love and respect the quiet power of Japanese gardens. I've been active in local garden societies and visited botanical gardens around the world, believing not only in the benefits of gardening itself, but of being in the garden and of being charmed by that special alchemy of plants, climate, soil, design, place, and space. Gardens are a place where we can become more alive and more connected with the world we share with others. And as the good book reminds us, it all began in a garden. Welcome to this week's show. As we move into October, this week we'll start with the latest in the Plant PPL series from the Los Angeles Times and have a couple more perspectives of British gardening through the eyes of the crown. But first, an article by Lisa Boone, published on September 7th in the Los Angeles Times. They transformed an abandoned auto shop into a plant haven and a neighborhood hub. It's a quiet Sunday night along Jefferson Boulevard in West Adams, but the plant Chica is buzzing with activity. Inside the neighborhood plant shop, it's standing room only as a group of LGBTQ writers listen to poetry and dines on vegan tacos. This is exactly what co-owner Sandra Mejia had envisioned when she and her husband, Batalem Adis, set out to open a plant shop in their neighborhood, a community space where everyone is welcome regardless of who they are or what they look like. I'm all about the underrepresented community, said Mejia, 33, a first-generation American whose parents immigrated to Los Angeles after fleeing civil war in El Salvador. I want to do anything I can to empower people. When the evening's host, Sasha Jones, owner and CEO of events group Cuties Los Angeles, thanks Mejia for sharing the plant chica with the queer and trans community, Applause and cheers reverberate throughout the outdoor patio of the former auto shop. She's amazing, 
Jones says of Mejia. She's an incredible ally, and it feels so healing to be in this environment filled with plants. The space is magical. Mejia grew up not far from here in what she describes as a green desert, without plant shops and drop-in activity centers. When she attended a charter high school in Pacific Palisades, she says she felt embarrassed to be from the hood. Today, she's proud of her roots because it has shaped who she is. If I hadn't grown up in South Central, I wouldn't have been pushed to change the narrative here, says Mejia, who has fond memories of growing up with a mother who had a green thumb and filled their house with plants. I want the kids who come here to know that they can be business owners no matter what they look like. My son said he's going to be a business owner someday. I want that for other POC kids. Representation is everything, she said. Her parents played an even larger role in encouraging her to invest in her community. My father was a pastor, she says. I'm an entrepreneur because of them. I did my first food drive for Nicaragua by collecting cans when I was in the first grade. The plant Chica started in 2018 as a side job when Mejia was working as a medical assistant at UCLA. As a new mom, she struggled with the demands of balancing work and parenting. She started selling plants on random street corners in the hopes of opening a family business that would allow her more flexibility to spend time with her son, Alem, five. The coronavirus pandemic proved they could. Our plant sales grew overnight, said Adis. 34. And because they were already established as an online company selling plants on Etsy, they were well prepared to handle the surge in plant sales. Regardless, the couple were so busy they were forced to install a pair of greenhouses at Mejia's parents' house to accommodate their inventory and transform the garage into a shipping office. In an ironic twist, the incredible demand for plants during the pandemic propelled them to open their first bricks-and-mortar store in 2021. Finding land in their neighborhood proved difficult. When Mejia and Adis laid eyes on the auto body shop in West Adams, it had sat idle for years. Where many saw a rundown commercial space, Mejia envisioned not only a plant shop, but a safe place for the community to gather. After a new coat of paint and the addition of string lights, the auto body shop now has the feel of a verdant greenhouse, with the expansive outdoor patio serving as a welcoming sanctuary for monthly events. In the retail shop, there's racks of reasonably priced houseplants, rubber plants, zizis, alacasias, and calatheas among them. Tall birds of paradise and lacy tree philodendrons rest on the ground and fill the space. Low-maintenance potos, succulents, and hoyas hang from the rafters of the curved metal ceiling. I like hoyas because they're so resilient and bloom when they're happy, Mejia said, just like humans. There's also a comfortable sitting area. A swing features a touching plaque with a quote from writer and poet Damien Leon. Immigrant parents, with their wings cut, still teach their children to fly. Custom street vases, planters, and rugs by Los Angeles artist Louis L.I.V. are inscribed with bold, bright blue Crenshaw and Los Angeles graphics. And in the middle of the shop, there are the wish list plants, rare varieties imported from around the world. Mejia hosts monthly events that she said she would have enjoyed growing up in the neighborhood. In addition to poetry nights, the Plant Chica has hosted a black-owned community market, a Hispanic heritage celebration, movie nights with Gorilla RX Wellness, storytelling and water balloon parties for kids, a black women's yoga collective, 
plant clinics and her famed Adopt-a-Plant events. Not one person showed up at my first free plant giveaway in 2018, she says with a laugh. More than 500 people attended her most recent plant donations. We gave up more than 2,000 free plants, she says. It's a great way to give back. The couple's civic-minded spirit has caught the eye of more than just plant fans and community groups. The Plant Chica is one of 15 companies that was awarded a $25,000 mentorship and venture capital support grant this year from the Annenberg Foundation. The couple hope to use the money to open more greenhouses in similar neighborhoods and create more jobs for people who are traditionally underrepresented. My husband and I are both so passionate about our business, says Mejia. We love what we do. Yes, I love plants. But I love that people can walk into the Plant Chica and feel like this is a community space. I feel like there are more and more plant shops who want to connect on deeper levels. We took something that was already here and turned it into something beautiful. We definitely want to inspire other businesses to give back to their neighborhoods. Plant Chica is at 40. 522 West Jefferson Boulevard in Los Angeles, right behind Mel's Fish Shack. It's open Wednesdays to Fridays, noon to 7, Saturdays and Sundays, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. The website is one word, theplantchica, C-H-I-C-A, dot com. An article by Lisa Boone, staff writer of the Los Angeles Times, published on September 7th, the latest in the Plant PPL series, They transformed an abandoned auto shop into a plant haven and neighborhood hub. Our next article is by Hannah Gardner was published on the 29th of September in the Financial Times. The gardening courses where knowledge germinates. How to update your horticultural skill set at a time of environmental crisis. Faced with an insurgence of demonized perennial weed ground elder, which method should you use to control it? Harvest its tender young leaves, Learn to tolerate it, controlling the spread by planting equally competitive and vigorous ornamentals and enjoying the wild aesthetic? Or how about weakening it by planting the chemical-exuding annual Tagates Manuta, a.k.a. the weed killer plant? Knowledge is power out there in the garden, or jungle, and increasingly gardeners seek a deeper understanding of how to work with nature and consider alternatives to chemicals and heavy-handed garden management. Nature can take care of many horticultural conundrums while also reducing garden chores. There are other shifts in how we garden. For many, gardening is just a hobby, but for a large share, it is also a means of producing food. In a 2021 poll by YouGov for the Horticultural Trades Association, 35% of British adults who responded said they used their garden or outdoor space to grow their own herbs, fruit, or vegetables. We are gardening in a time of environmental crisis, when a new approach and shift of emphasis is undoubtedly needed. Planning provisions due to come into force next year will require building developers to set out biodiversity gains to secure permission. While this does not apply to the country's 27 million gardeners, they too can contribute to halting and reversing the global decline in 
biodiversity. Doing nothing to re-educate yourself can feel complacent, as we are directed to go peat-free, be kind to wildlife, garden sustainably, and all at no cost to yield. A boom in horticultural learning has widened opportunities for both the casual and committed grower, and many see the merit in updating their gardening skill set, extending their knowledge, and gaining a fresh perspective. So for gardeners whose response to the environmental crisis is to maximize the ecological value of their gardens, where should they start in realizing those ambitions? Online education is an accessible and diverse resource, but the learning style can feel incomplete and passive for such a practical subject, where method and close observation are key. Many of the gardening skills people want to learn are based around reviving traditional methods and promoting the habit of self-reliance, buying less and using what you have at your disposal. Surely the best place to learn about such hands-on gardening is in a garden. The return of in-person learning has led to a number of new educational garden-based workshops with high-quality content delivered by inspirational expert tutors. The Wild Gardening One-Day Course, held by Susan Maberly, the owner of Nant Ebed Garden, situated high up in the Black Mountains of Wales, offers real insight into how to achieve an ecologically diverse wild style without compromising productivity. Maberly has a degree in environmental systems, a background working in public sector conservation initiatives, and has gardened ecologically for 40 years. In her teaching, she picks up themes from permaculture and rewilding, delving into the detail of welcoming wildflowers and self-seeders, and exploring the spontaneity that working with nature, rather than seeking to control it, can bring. Maberly runs a program of workshops taught in her hillside organic garden and has found there is an increasing demand from both novice and seasoned gardeners who aspire to manage land in an environmentally sensitive way. Urban and rural garden owners, garden designers, and community project leaders travel from across the UK. Maberly says attendees use all the senses to learn, not just sight and sound which are the only senses used in online learning. Putting a hand on the compost to actually feel how hot it is really brings the message home about the importance of generating heat in the heap to speed up the process, she says. Spelling the earthy woodland scent of good, ready-to-use compost demonstrates what good compost looks and feels better than any video. A key feature of such workshops is the limited number of attendees. This allows for insightful contributions and for everyone's questions and comments to be heard. Being immersed in a garden brings into focus the successes and challenges of the approach being taught, with questions explored as they arise. It also highlights the role of the land as a learning resource. And in a world of digital communication, in-person learning signals a return to a more mellow kind of networking swapping details with fellow attendees who share similar interests. Jimmy Blake is a plant obsessive who says, apart from plants, my other big passion is teaching. He teaches an online program, but also increasingly educates in his own garden, hosting Let's Talk Plants evenings in summer and a more advanced plants persons course held one day a month over the course of a year. Blake's encyclopedic knowledge is based on decades of adventurous gardening at Huntingbrook, his kaleidoscope 20-acre garden in County Wicklow, Ireland. Both courses place an emphasis on practical skills, 
Propagation methods and details of maintenance and organic management are covered in addition to close analysis of the plants. He cheerfully tells me he also sets students homework so they can practice skills between classes. Damson Farm near Bath has been home to a dynamic program of ecologically themed workshops since last year. Its courses cover specialist areas such as soil as a living ecosystem and design your edible garden on ornamental edible plants. Founder Allison Jenkins limits student numbers to 10 for each session. Participants often have a lot to contribute, so the conversation around the kitchen table at lunchtime is a valuable part of the day, she says. I really enjoy the sense of energy and connection that creates, particularly after the pandemic years. Gardeners who have been struggling to appreciate that slugs and snails have their place in a garden ecosystem and want to learn once and for all how to accommodate but manage them, can sign up for workshops such as the one organized by Damson Farms and taught by RHS master grower Christopher Smith. Pennard Plants is Smith's two-acre Victorian walled garden in Somerset. It's also the home of his nursery, which has specialized in organically producing unusual fruit and vegetables and selling their seeds since 2006. In his course, Natural Methods for Controlling Pests and Diseases, the emphasis shifts to preventive holistic measures, such as good soil health, choosing plants wisely, developing observation and pest identification skills. Companion planting utilizes the characteristics of certain plants to deter unwelcome pests and maximizes the benefits of others to attract beneficial insects and predators. Placing potted mint near brassica crops to repel destructive cabbage white butterflies, for example. It was Smith who introduced me to the weed-killing Mexican marigold, Tajetis minuta, also sharing his recipes for homemade plant stimulants, repellents, and sprays. I asked a fellow attendee, a lot mentier and city gardener Judith Brotherton, for details of a workshop that has helped improve her gardening and learn a new skill. A day course that stands out in my mind is Taking Cuttings, led by Derry Watkins, and held at her nursery special plants, she says. I had read how to take cuttings, but my results were dismal. The course was a turning point, expert tuition by a brilliant plantswoman, and I left confident and able to try a wider range of softwood and hardwood cuttings. I owe my improved skill to that day, and I still refer to the notes I took. Jude Rice, a community gardener focused on regenerative food production, says the in-person courses usually involved a practical element which suits the way I learn. Being shown a method in situ has been really useful. Demand is high, with workshops already booking for late autumn and next spring. It is worth planning ahead and investing your time in pursuit of the constructive and pleasurable re-education of a gardener. An article by Hannah Gardner published in the Financial Times on the 30th of September, The Gardening Courses Where Knowledge Germinates. Turn next to two columns by Robin Lane Fox, published in the Financial Times, the first on the 26th of September. Q's kitchen garden is fit for an Echo King. It used to supply King George III. Now it uses sustainable methods the new monarch would approve of. 
Vegetable gardening is caught between two hard places. The summer drought has been ruinous for lettuces, spinach, and leafy green crops. The cost of heating a greenhouse has soared, putting aubergine, peppers, cucumbers, and indoor tomatoes beyond easy reach. In June, Kew Gardens opened a new area called Edible Science, aiming to work towards more sustainable production processes. I have just checked it out. It stands on the site of Kew's old walled kitchen garden, which once supplied food to King George III. Our Echo King Charles III would appreciate its ground rules. It is following a no-dig policy. Like the King's Garden at Highgrove, it avoids use of chemical weed killers. It will soon include a shelter with an edible green roof of alpine strawberries, thyme, and nasturtiums, whose peppery leaves are good in salads. Bee houses will be placed around the garden, and some of the cabbage plants will be left to run to seed so that Kew's scientists can study their pollen. Some of the beds link up with existing research at Kew, whether on food plants in Mexico or the types of bean that will best resist drought. This edible science area is another fine addition to the garden, one visitors will enjoy inspecting. It stands near the recently planted Aegeus Evolution Garden, which shows the advance of plants on our planet through the millions of years since life began. Like the Evolution Garden, it is the result of generous donations. Its budget was 280,000 pounds to include a new pattern of paths with a hard surface of sustainable setic gravel. Like me, the planners considered that vegetables are best grown in beds raised above the level of whatever passes for existing soil. Beds with porous edging have been built on top of it. As Kew has an abundance of homemade shredded compost, it was tractored round to the veg beds and laid to a depth of at least one foot above the old soil's level. The cost is way beyond normal gardeners' budgets, but the principle of raising beds and laying new soil is certainly not. At Kew, the capital budget has to cover the cost of gardeners to maintain the project. It has also paid for water points in the corner of each bed to which leaky hose pipes can be attached and run at ground level for an hour at a time. They are the most economical way of watering vegetables, especially in a garden which depends on one full-time gardener and volunteers. With Helena Dove, head of the kitchen garden, I looked at progress since work began nine months ago. The visual impact of kitchen gardening is so quick. While my recently planted helipores have been struggling to survive dry weather, Kew's edible garden has acquired vertical lines and a green and jungly look. Curtains of gourds and edible climbers hang on metal arches. I was impressed by wooden panels, each with five rows of slats, which are propped up at an angle above one of the beds like cold frames. They make supports about three feet long for scrambling cucumbers planted beneath. The Roman Emperor Tiberius used to order his cucumbers to be grown on movable frames, which could be sited wherever the sun was strongest early in the year. At Kew, the cucumbers are raised under glass, like many of the vegetables in the edible science garden, and are then transplanted beside these frames in early summer. On their slats, cucumber mini munch and Bedfordshire Prize are growing happily. A good source of seeds for next year's crop is dtbrownseeds.co.uk, which even lists one called Socrates. 
How have the echo rules worked out in practice? Dove explained to my group of fellow gardeners how she burns off existing weeds with a flame gun and never uses chemical weed killers. She's still picking off the stems of bindweed by hand whenever they appear. I would never be so dogmatic. One targeted dab of glyphosate on the leaves and all that bindweed would have been harmlessly dead long ago. Glyphosate kills by contact with leaves, not the soil. To stop weeds in the setic paths, I bet that chemicals will have to be used anyway. Dove and her team also never dig the ground. The world, she tells me, has been doing fine without us. I am a veteran of a type of digging called bastard trenching. It depends on what you want to do with the world meanwhile. Broadly, I agree with a no-dig policy. Digging disturbs the soil and encourages weed to germinate in it. In established veg beds, I too would prefer to top dress heavily with mulches after rain in winter and then hoe the surface lightly from time to time. However, deep mulches cannot be piled on year after year. There needs to be an interval in which forking is an alternative. One of Dove's excellent aims is to illustrate what owners of smaller gardens can grow. She has three good maxims. Use vertical space. Think in chunks of one square foot at a time, marked out by canes laid on the ground. Choose heavily cropping smaller varieties. I noted down the labels on her low-growing tomatoes, Tumbling Tom Red and Tumbling Tom Yellow, and her low peppers, Lemon Dream and Tangerine Dream. I also learned from her advice and example that the answer to growing proper spinach is to sow Malabar spinach under glass and set the young plants out in summer when they will make climbing plants with big green leaves, fully flavored. King's Seeds of Kevelden, Essex, supply packets for only two pounds and five pence. Q's venture in edible science is keen to find edible vegetables that we are ignoring. I'm not sure that the roots of ornamental cannas will ever dominate dinner tables. Yacon might perhaps have a future, but I will not give up on potatoes just because they have had a bad year of blight. Dahlia tubers may seem like another culinary dead end, but here I was updated by one of my fellow visitors. Lucy Hutchings abandoned a career in fashion and jewelry in order to be self-sufficient in vegetables, feeding herself and her family. Gardening in bone-dry Suffolk, she has more than 160,000 followers on Instagram, at she grows veg and tells me that she and her husband, a professional chef, grate some of the tubers of their dahlias when they lift them and then cook them as tasty rusti. What about that Echo Flashpoint wildlife? At Q, labels like to spell out an ex experience for visitors. And after hearing about cohabitating with slugs, I hit on the label of the day. I illustrate it with this column. We are currently experiencing lots of badger action. Join the gang, Q. Chili flakes and pepper will never deter a badger on the prowl. Stripy invaders are trotting through the garden's gate at night and rootling in its dampened Ethiopian beds. Watering encouraged them to play ball with Dove's young vegetables in search of grubs and insects. I hate to mention it, Q, but badgers have a history of being edible, too. A column by Robin Lane Fox, published on September 23rd in the Financial Times, Q's kitchen garden is fit for an Echo King.
As the pomp and ceremony over the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II now fades, we share one perspective from Robin Lane Fox, published on the 30th of September, Funeral Wreaths and Other Royal Reinventions. The breaking of the British drought has led to a heavenly autumn flowering in our gardens. I have been viewing it through the lens of history, first through a visit to the garden of a house with ancient connections, then through the late Queen's funeral. Like the monarchy, this house and its garden have had a history of reinventing themselves. I will take the funeral first. The flowers on the Queen's coffin for Westminster Abbey were superbly matched, chosen, and arranged. Traditional florist flowers were minimized in favor of flowers from the various royal gardens. They were truly classy, and none of them wilted, even under the glare of millions of watchers worldwide. Seasonal heads of pink-red sedum kept company with dark red scabiosin, roses that I strove to identify on my TV screen. Some of them, I think, were the new pink platinum jubilee, bred by Harkness Roses and launched this year. What a joy to see dahlias in the center, not narrowly British flowers, but ones that gardeners have continued to value during the Queen's long reign. While on view in Westminster Hall, the coffin was decorated with white flowers, but even there, seasonal dahlias were to the fore. I haven't been able to verify with the palace, but here are my identifications of the varieties on view. The white dahlias were Caro and the excellent Karma Martin Zwan, two top choices for next year. The latter being a great grower and free flowerer, as I can testify from my plants of it this autumn. On the coffin in the abbey, the double dark reds were either Arabian Night, a top choice in recent decades, or the more recently bred Karma Co. Both are excellent. They will carry memories of the event into subsequent Septembers. I will be sure to have them in the garden. I had prefaced the great occasion with a visit to Great Chalfield Manor in Wiltshire. This remarkable house traces back to years when two competing royal houses, wars, were splitting the country in the Wars of the Roses. It is now owned by the National Trust, but remains lived in by its donor family, the Floyds. They run the garden while the Trust maintains the house. The day before the funeral, I was taken round the garden by its presiding genius, Patsy Floyd, who has styled and planted its eight acres during the past 30 years. Chalfield Manor has several links to the monarchy and nobility. They begin with a sequel to the English King Henry V's victory over the French at Agincourt. They continue into the Civil War of the 1640s, when the manor was seized and damaged by anti-royal roundheads. In the 1760s, it became linked with the lady whom George II tried to fondle. In the early 1900s, it benefited from a reinvention of tradition, something which the monarchy also began to exploit. First, Agincourt. On the battlefield, Lord Hungerford is said to have captured a supreme prize, the Duke d'Orléans. Unencumbered by trade agreements, he took him back to England as a prisoner, where the Duke was kept in custody for the next 25 years. Helped by his proceeds from the battle, Hungerford continued to amass even more properties in England. As he was an adept talent spotter, he took young Thomas Tropnell onto his staff to handle matters of the law. Tropnell then spread his own wings and acquired properties throughout Wiltshire. He would surely appreciate our house and home section as he piled up more than 40 of them, including the site of Great Chalfield, where he started to build the first big manor of the 1460s. 
Artfully, he remained on good terms with both sides in the Royal Wars of the Roses. Meanwhile, he was described by a contemporary as a perilous, covetous man. You probably know others. After suffering in the Civil War, Chalfield passed to the Duke of Kingston and his mistress, Elizabeth Churley, whom he married in 1760. By then, she had been propositioned by the King George II, who had tried to put his hand on one of her breasts. Deftly, she anticipated it and transferred it to what she called a softer place, the king's forehead. Only after Kingston married her did it emerge that she was married already. She was then tried for bigamy in Westminster Hall. Chalfield's history already reads like a subplot of The Crown, but by 1900 it had fallen into grave disrepair. Luckily, plans of its original architecture had been drawn up in the 1840s by a pupil of the neo-Gothic architect Pugin. In the early 1900s, a new family of owners then acted on them. They are an example of invigorating social mobility. Robert Fuller, heir to the house and garden, trained as an engineer, then became the head of the family business Avon Rubber. Profiting from the invention of rubber-tired bicycles, and then cars, he rebuilt Chalfield Manor to the 1840s plan with the help of a skilled neo-Gothic architect, Harold Breakspear. He also hired the garden artist, Alfred Parsons, to design and plant the garden in a nostalgic English style. Neo-movements are not given much credit by modern critics. While Chalfield was being given a second life, kilts and Scottish baronial architecture, two neo-fashions, had reanimated British monarchical style. In her updating of Parsons' plan for the garden, Patsy Floyd showed me her own reinterpretations at Chalfield, enjoyed by National Trust visitors. They include well-pruned lavender hedges, myrtles, rosemary, dahlias, and pink roses, flowers that all earned a place in the recent royal wreaths. When the lavender bushes become leggy after several years, they are pruned hard to the ground in late May, but thrive on the treatment. The dahlias are cactus-flowered and orange, cleverly mixed with the orange lantern-shaped seed heads of physalis. The pink roses include a neglected favorite, twice-flowering Nathalie Nippels, a brush variety that is well worth growing. In a new long border, white-flowered goras have been prettily mixed with New England Michaelmas daisies, supported on thick lengths of hazelwood. In an adjoining bed, magenta pick salvia, involucrata, is combined only with dark violet-blue salvia amistad, each enhancing the other's color. These salvias are often hardy in winter, but Patsy Floyd takes hers into a reserve polytunnel and cuts them down to the ground in November, keeping them dense and not too tall for the following summer. She began her career as a photographer, especially one of horses, including such famous race winners as Secretariat and Mill Reef. She traces her sense of color to her work with a camera, including work for racing, the sport of kings, and of our late queen. Within a day, I was reflecting how much of the planting in an English garden like Chalfield interrelates with the flowers chosen for the queen's last wreath. In an American state funeral, I would expect wreaths of formal flowers, such as lilies, and in a French one, a white or peachy garland of florist roses entwined in a chic style. In Britain, the final wreath was one of flowers that Britain's gardeners, like their queens, actually grow. It could not have been better. The most recent article by 
Robin Lane Fox, Funeral Wreaths and Other Royal Reinventions, published in the Financial Times on September 30th. That wraps up edition 172 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening program produced for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. Please send us your comments at www.lars.org, L-A-R-R-S, or email us at onewordlaradioreading at gmail.com. Give us suggestions of gardens or stories to follow, your thought on a favorite story you heard, or what you think about the broadcast itself. Gardens are not just plants, soil, and irrigation. They speak to us of the world around us, even as we try to create order and structure. They connect us to our landscape, to the cycles of nature. They teach us patience, stewardship, and fortitude. They offer possibilities of beauty and of persistence, sometimes even of transcendence. And they open our senses to both the heart and the soul, to being alive, to being connected with other gardeners, other gardens, and other times. Whether in a container or in pots on a balcony in the city, in a defined dedicated garden space or planted around a suburban house, or on land surrounded by trees, landscape, and open sky, gardens are precious indeed, no matter where they are. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host. Thanks for joining us. Until the next time.